And I'd like to invite the rest of you to open your copy of God's life-giving word to the book of Nehemiah. We'll be in chapter 8 this morning. So Nehemiah chapter 8, uh, we're going to continue our series that we're calling Build Again. Build Again. Um, you and I both know that it's been a really, really uh, difficult week in the world. Um, we've seen uh, beginning Wednesday night the, the invasion of Ukraine by uh, Russia, and our hearts are heavy uh, as we come in uh, this morning as we think about uh, what's happening there and the unjust invasion and uh, the, the resulting uh, fear and uh, oppression and death that is a part of uh, this, this war that uh, we're seeing unfold before our eyes as we tune in to to what's happening there. So uh, by all means, we need to pray for Ukraine. We need to pray for our world, and uh, we need to ask God to intervene and uh, to preserve life and to uh, help uh, these people through this time. So uh, let's pray one more time, and then uh, we're going to get into God's Word. So Father, we thank you uh, that you're a good God. We thank you that you're a God who is our vision, Lord. You help us see uh, our world, Lord. Uh, we help You help us see everything, and you help us see the difference between right and wrong, good and evil, truth uh, and error, uh, justice and injustice. Uh, so, Father, we, we call on your name, Lord, with the great prayers that we've been reading about in Nehemiah, Lord. They're so applicable to our lives every day, and particularly as we look at what's happening uh, in Eastern Europe. God, we know that you are the great and awesome God that you are sovereign over every detail of our world. We know that you are good and that you do good things. And when we see evil, we know that it is not from you. And so, God, we pray uh, for uh, the people of Ukraine, particularly, Lord, uh, as, they, uh, as they stand their ground, as they fight. Um, as they seek to preserve the lives. So we think of so many uh, hundreds of thousands, uh, probably millions now, refugees that are fleeing to, to Poland and Hungary and the surrounding uh, countries there. Lord, would you protect them? God, we think of the, the, the emotional pain that these families are experiencing as uh, fathers are saying uh, goodbye to their children. Husbands are saying goodbye to their wives and uh, not with any guarantee that they're going to see them again. And so, God, we ask that you would help them, Lord. We ask that you would uh, be their strength. And, God, we pray for uh, a peaceful resolution, Lord, it, just as fast as it possibly can, can come about. Uh, so give, give the leaders of the world wisdom, Lord. Give them uh, strategies that would help uh, protect and preserve life. And, uh, Lord, we, uh, we look to you in all things, and we look to you now. Uh, as we pray for uh, our world, and uh, God, as we also pray for our own hearts, Lord, that uh, you, would, you would speak to us now, and that you would uh, meet us right where we are as we learn to build again and uh, pursue you above everything in our lives. Uh, that's our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, as I've uh, watched the, the news this past week, obviously, like you, there have been, you know, a hundred, you know, thousand, you know, thoughts that are just flooding my mind in terms of the, the circumstances that uh, are being uh, faced there in the Ukraine, uh, such courageous leadership uh, from uh, President Zelensky and, and the, the forces of Ukraine to fight the citizens taking up arms and uh, just an amazing, uh, you know, resolve that they're displaying uh, as, as Russia invades their country. 
And uh, I, I couldn't help but notice these, you know, families that are trying by train or car or however they can get to the border. They're packing up their belongings and, and taking uh, just the, the few things that they need, uh, food and clothing, and maybe one other just possession that really means something to them, if that, uh, just with their children, with their loved ones, with the elderly, uh, to make it to safety. And uh, one of the, the less important thoughts that went through my mind this week, of course, uh, was, was this. Uh, what, what is it that, that they're taking with them? And, and I know that's a very small and, and really unimportant question in the grand scheme of what's happening there. But I couldn't help but just think of the, the human uh, predicament and the, the, the humanality of everything that's happening as these people are fleeing uh, for refuge. And it, and it caused me to begin to ask a question, what is necessary in our lives? We can think about this at a physical level, but we should most certainly consider it at a spiritual level as well. What is necessary? What, what really matters? If, if we only have the opportunity to, to possess just a few things in our lives, what can we not live without? And as we get to Nehemiah chapters 8 and 9, we begin to see the spiritual condition of the people being reformed. You remember last week we said chapters 1 through 6 tell about the rebuilding of the wall around Jerusalem, but chapter 7 and moving forward starts to tell of the rebuilding of the people. And there's a physical rebuilding that happens, but it was more for the spiritual rebuilding of the people. And so we see the heart of the people as they draw near to God and as they say, we, there are some things that we just cannot live without when it comes to knowing God and having a vital, vibrant, yes, growing relationship with him. And so what we find in Nehemiah 8 is they gather for this festival, this holy convocation that's spoken of in Leviticus chapter 23. They come together and they speak to Ezra the scribe and they give him one instruction. They say, bring the book. Bring the book. They are saying, we need to understand and know God's word because God's word is something that we cannot live without. And why was that? Listen, you, you, if you've been around Redemption Hill, if you're new to Redemption Hill, welcome to Redemption Hill. We're a church that loves God and love, loves God's word. And why we love God's word is because we love God. We believe that God's voice is revealed through the words. This, these are more than just words on a page to us. They are the very words of God, his love letter to us. And so that's why we would say with the people of Israel, bring the book in our life. We want to, to live with a humble hunger for God and his word. That's the call that we hear this morning as we dive into Nehemiah chapters 8 and 9. We want to live with a humble hunger for God and for God's word. So what I want to do is this. I want to read the first 12 verses. We're going to cover a lot of ground today, okay? So keep your Bible open as we work through chapters 8 and 9. This is how the book, the chapter begins. It says this, and all the people gathered as one man into the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra the scribe 
to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly, both men and women and all who could understand what they heard on the first day of the seventh month. And he read from it facing the square before the water gate from early morning until midday in the presence of the men and the women and those who could understand. And the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. And Ezra, the scribe, stood on a wooden platform that they had made for the purpose. And beside him stood Mattiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Pediah, Mashiel, Zechariah, and Meshulam on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people. For he was above all the people, and as he opened it, the people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Hodiah, Messiah, Kalita, Azariah, Jezebel, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly, and they gave this sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor and Ezra, the priest and scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go your way, eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions to anyone who has nothing ready. For this day is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that were declared to them. I want to give you two sweeping encouragements as we work our way through chapters 8 and 9 today. The first encouragement that we have from these verses is simply this. Hunger for God and his joy-producing word. Hunger for God and his joy-producing word. What we find in verse 1 is that the people have gathered for this holy convocation, this holy assembly that is prescribed in Leviticus chapter 23, verse 24. This was the beginning of the month of festivals. Historically, you may be familiar with what was known as the Day of Atonement that was to happen 10 days later. And then as we see in chapter uh, 8, as we move forward, that the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles was to happen 15 days later after this first day. 
And so they're, they're responding to this gathering. And when they gather together in, in a united uh, way, they ask Ezra the scribe. A scribe was someone who was trained in the law, who copied the, the law of God and communicated it to people and taught it to people. They say to Ezra, bring the book. They want to hear from God's word on this occasion. Now, this is actually the first appearance of Ezra in the book of Nehemiah. The book before Nehemiah is Ezra, and Ezra dominates. He's the key character in the book of Ezra, but this is the first time that he shows up in the book of Nehemiah. He arrived in Jerusalem 13 years before Nehemiah to lead and serve the people as they were seeking to rebuild the city out of their time of exile. And I love this this request to bring the book. It says in in verse 1 that they ask him to bring the book of the law of Moses that the Lord had commanded Israel. So even at the end of verse 1, we might kind of read it fast and miss the fact that we actually have a theology of the Word of God, a theology of the Bible, even in verse 1, because it says... We're asking you to bring the law that Moses wrote, but it is the law that God gave or commanded Moses to write. And so no other book will we find in the world that has human authors, in fact, many different human authors, and yet one capital A author, God himself, who is inspiring the book and giving it to his people. But as they, they ask for this, this book, again, we need to remember that this is a love letter from God. That God is teaching the people how to live and how to relate to him and to one another. And so I want to give you four characteristics of, of how we should approach the word of God as we not just come together on Sundays, as important as Sundays may be, but as we come to God's book any and every day. Uh, The first characteristic is this. We see that they, again, display a hunger, a hunger for the word of God. The the picture that we see here is what we want to pray for, for one another and for our church family. We see here that it's not the leaders who are asking for Ezra to bring the book. It's actually the people who have gathered, the men and the women and the children who are raising their voice to Ezra and saying, Ezra, bring the book. They're hungry for God's word. It says in verse three that they were so hungry that Ezra reads the law from early morning until midday. I mean, I I don't know about you, but I can't point to too many times in my life where I've sat down and I've either read for five hours or I've listened to five hours of consecutive sermons or, you know, I've gathered with friends and we just said, hey, we're going to read the word of God for not just, you know, 30 minutes or 45 minutes or an hour, but we're just going to sit and we're just going to read about half the day and spend about five hours listening to the word of God. This is what's happening here. They display a great hunger for the word of God. I like how they build Ezra a wooden platform. I almost made a request. We have some craftsmen in our church. You know, they're good with wood. I thought about asking if anyone can make me a little wooden platform just to have a little bit more of a picture of what's going on today, but I guess the stage will do, all right? Uh, but, But what we see here is Ezra is not just speaking to a people who are hungry for the word of God. God, make us hungry for your word. But he is also someone who embodies a hunger for God's word. And please pray this for your pastors. 
We see in the book of Ezra, chapter 7, verse 10. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible. It describes Ezra the scribe in this way. It says, for Ezra set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to do it, and to teach his statutes in Israel. What you have here is what I like to call a missiological spiral of the word of God, okay? What I'm saying is that we need to read the word. We need to know what the word says, but it's not enough to read it and understand it. We actually need to live it. This is what Ezra does. He studies it, he does it, but he doesn't stop there. He actually takes what he's learned and what he's doing, and then he gives it away to other people. This is the missiological spiral as we live and in, 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 in understand the word of God. The people display a hunger, but they also display reverence. There's a reverence about how they are approaching the word of God. Look, look back as it says here that they, they were attentive in verse 3. It says, and the ears of all the people were attentive to the book of the law. In other words, they were leaning in. They were hanging on every word that was said. I mean, only you know whether you're, where physically your body is like leaning in, okay, or you're just eye contact. I love the eye contact, by the way. This is an indicator of attentive listening. Uh, and so whatever, whatever the body posture, we, only we know if our heart is really leaning in to hear from God. And again, this is so relevant, not just for Sunday morning. This is, I mean, what great instruction for how to listen to a sermon and how to draw near to God as the word of God is preached. But anytime, listen, anytime you get up in the morning or maybe before you go to bed, you open God's word and you read a psalm, you, the posture of our heart hopefully is one of full attention. We talked about last, uh, a couple of weeks ago, this intense focus that we're to live with where our attention is undivided, that we want to hear from God. We, we don't want to just show up and like not walk away with something, but we want to receive in such a way that we know the God of heaven has spoken to our hearts because we are leaning in and hanging on every word. But then it also says in verse 5 that the people stood as he read. I almost ask you to stand at the reading of God's word. Maybe you grew up in churches that did that. We could do that. It's great. It's wonderful. It's a way to honor God's word. I just didn't ask you today because it's something that we don't do most Sundays, all right? But, but to, to stand at the reading of God's word is a physical way of giving attention, but also honor to say, this is so important. We are going to stand up as one people as we receive God's words. So they display a hunger for the word. They display a reverence for the word. But then we also see in verses 6 through 9 that they are responsive. They are responsive. They were excited about their relationship with God. And we see this in a few ways. It says in verse 6 that Ezra blesses the Lord, the great God, and then all the people answered what? Amen. Amen. Now, now here is the evidence that I've been waiting for, all right? This is the evidence that I have been waiting to share with our church, okay, that talking back to the preacher is biblical. It's like, hey, thank you, amen. It's like, you know, we can, we can 
we can talk back. We can say yes. That's what amen means. Like, I agree. We can say preacher, preacher. We can say keep, I mean, there's some wild things that you can say that are, you know, let's keep it clean, of course. But I mean, just, you know, like, and, and we don't want to just, you know, say it to say it. You go into some churches not trying to hate, but it's like some churches, they're, they're amening every word. It's like, for real? Like, was that... You know, but, but when we hear something that's great about our God, when we hear a truth about him, his work, what he's doing in our lives, what he's done for us in Christ, what we sung about this morning, we can't help but our hearts just to beat a little bit faster, to get excited about it. Thank you. That's great. I mean, you, let's keep working on it today. Let this be a practice Sunday for us as a church. So good. So good. You guys are even throwing, now you're throwing me off because you're actually saying, amen. I'm going to probably be stumbling and stuttering around, but you just keep doing it and we'll work on it together. All right. So they, they, they talk back. They say, amen, amen. And then it says that they got their bodies involved too. They lift their hands as they're shouting out, amen, amen. But then it also says that they bowed their heads down to the ground and they worshiped God as they heard the word and as they were responding, not just with their hearts, but we are embodied souls, right? Our bodies at times need to match what's happening in our heart to even accentuate and emphasize and intensify what is happening on the inside. So we worship God with with our response. And and then it also says in verse 9, It says that as they heard the law, that they were weeping over what they heard. It's easier to get excited. Oh, that's great. God is great. You know, preacher, preacher, whatever. Uh, But there was this, there was this, um, this uh, professor at seminary. He was an amazing man, African-American professor, actually a blind man. And, uh, you know, coming from a more expressive tradition, uh, he was the talk back person in chapel every week. So that's the point. And, you know, yes, sir. And all these, I mean, like Logue Dr. Carson, Miss Dr. Carson, amazing man. Um, but, but, but it's easy to get excited But it's not always so easy to say, you know what? That right there, that hurts. Because it's speaking to my heart and it's showing me ways that my heart is not aligned with God's heart. And something needs to change. That needs to bother me on the inside because God's way is best. And he made me to live for him and to honor him and to worship him. And so the ways that I'm hearing that the law is saying, hey, you need to do these things and you need to not do these things, that all of a sudden there's some misalignment and there's a grieving that's happening. Just like Josiah, King Josiah in 2 Chronicles 34, verse 27, when he heard the law of God read again, he wept because he knew that he and the people had not kept God's instructions. So listen, there are there almost without fail, every time we encounter the word of God, likely your experience is going to be this. If you are in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, there are going to be some times where the Holy Spirit is clapping his hands and cheering you on, and he's saying, keep it up. Keep it up, keep running, keep loving, keep serving, keep forgiving, keep doing all of these things that I have made you for. But then there are going to be times where he's saying, uh-uh, no, 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 you need, to, you need to change that. 
because that doesn't reflect my heart. That doesn't display my love. And when we're exposed, when our hearts are exposed and we see the ways that we're misaligned, we need to have a godly sorrow and to confess that to God as we draw near to him. So the people are hungry, they're, they're reverent, they're responsive. But then finally, another keynote of their relationship with God and his word, they are very, very teachable. They are teachable. Look at verses 7 through 12. Uh, we, we find this key word, not just in verse 7 and 8 and 12, but even backing up to verse 2 and verse 3, it says that they came to understand what was being said from the law of God. Now, let's just think about the difference between knowledge and understanding, okay? People can have knowledge. They can know a lot about a lot of things. They can have a lot of information, but they may not have understanding. Understanding is taking the information that we receive in all of the facts and then synthesizing it to understand how it all relates together and the actual meaning of the words for us and our lives. And so it says that they came together, and even not just Ezra, but I love this. Uh, we're talking about empowered living this year, and it's not just one person or a few people, but it's a church full of people that are empowered to love and to serve. And we need, listen, we don't need one teacher. Thank God we don't just have one teacher in our church. We, have, we need many teachers, we need many empowered teachers to lead our groups, our community groups, and our discipleship groups, and, and to be a, a part of building people up through the word of God. And so I love, uh, I, I almost wanted to do this, not just a wooden platform, but did you hear that Ezra, he had like, a, he had an entourage of holy men on his right hand and his left. I'm not going to say their names again, because I didn't say them right the first time. So I'm not going to, you know, punish myself uh, to, by saying their names again. But he has all these guys on his right hand and on his left that are not just there to make Ezra look good. They're actually there to serve the people. It says that they go out and they give the sense of what the law is saying to the people. In other words, they are helping them understand the meaning of the words and what God is actually communicating to his people. And I want to just pause for a minute and say, especially if you're maybe newer to Redemption Hill, um, most every Sunday, we are preaching through books of the Bible. There are times where we'll pull out for a thematic series. In fact, just before Easter, after we wrap up Nehemiah, we're going to do a three-week series on the Holy Spirit. And in that three-week series, guess what we're going to do? We're going to take a text of the Bible, and we're just going to work our way through it. And then afterwards, we're, because we're looking at the spiritual gifts that God has given us as his people in empowered living... After Easter, we're going to go seven weeks through each of the major passages on spiritual gifts, but we're going to work right through those passages because we believe in what is called expository preaching, which means we are, we are pulling out the meaning of the text. We are explaining the text as God has given it to us, what it means and how it applies to our lives. We are not seeking to read our understanding or our meaning into the text, but we're trying to pull out from the text what God has said to us. And so this is what Ezra is doing here. This is what the Levites are doing. They're helping people understand what God is saying in his word. 
But then we see their teachability in one other way. As we zoom into verses 9 through 12, we find, as we pointed out a minute ago, that they are weeping because of what they heard and how their lives didn't line up with the word of God. But Ezra and the Levites come around and they say, you need to stop mourning. And we're thinking, whoa, like, shouldn't they be sorrowful for their sin? And of course they should. This was an appropriate response for them to be sorrowful over their sin before God. But it was not the right time to express that sorrow. Because the first day of the month, as I shared a little bit earlier, was the first day of the festivals. And they were to come together to celebrate and to rejoice and to uh, remember who God is and what he has done for the people. And so they say, hey, it's not the time to mourn. It's not the time to grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Nehemiah 8 verse 10 is probably the most quoted verse in the book of Nehemiah. The joy of the, if you love worship music and you listen to worship songs, you're probably going to come across more than one song that is singing about the joy of the Lord is our strength, and it is. But what, is, what does this mean? What is Ezra and the Levites communicating to the people when they say, hey, it's not the time for mourning, for the joy of the Lord is your strength? Well, number one, we need to ask the question, what is the joy of the Lord? Is the joy of the Lord God's joy or is the joy of the Lord our joy? What do you think? It's a tough, it's a tough question. I think what's happening here, even contextually, we see that the people are rejoicing. We see this multiple times that the people are rejoicing, but they are rejoicing. Watch this. They, they are rejoicing with what? the joy that's found in God that he gives them. So, so the joy of the Lord, I think here, is the joy that we have that is given to us from God. For from him, through him, and to him are all things. And as we, we look at a little closer at this joy and the joy of God, I just want to ask you, listen, did you know that God rejoices over you? Did you know that God gets excited about you? Did you, did you know that, that God is the source of joy? The fruit of the Spirit is what? Love, joy, peace, patience, all of these things. Amen. Thank you, Nancy. Keep them coming, Nancy. Even if no one else says amen, Nancy, you just keep them coming. You bring your tambourine next Sunday, and we're going to celebrate. All right. <laughs> God is a God of joy. And he wants us to experience his joy. He wants us to live with his joy, a joy, listen, that is not dependent on our circumstances. I mean, it's wild what the Bible says. Even James in chapter 1, verse 2 says, Consider it all joy, brothers, when you face trials of many kinds. How can we do that? What is even the Bible saying when it says crazy stuff like that? It's not saying rejoice over war. God is not excited or fired up about what is happening, and, he's, and he is heartbroken over it. 
But even in the circumstances of war, listen, for someone who knows Jesus, they can still rejoice because their ultimate joy is not found in their circumstances, but their ultimate joy is found in the God who never changes. Amen. Thank you. So this is what the joy of the Lord is. And I want you to picture this because this is what's going on in Nehemiah 7, 8, 9, and following, okay? What is happening here is a covenant renewal. On January, uh, July, sorry, July 22nd, 2006, I married that beautiful woman over there. This is the evidence to prove it. Even to have the ring, is still married. You can give it up for Marcia. Thank you for the talk backs and the claps today. All right, wonderful. And, and, and at times, married couples go through what is called a marriage renewal ceremony where they come together and they re-express their love for one another, their devotion to the, one another. They're coming together to say, I am devoted to you and you alone. And for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer. You can go ahead and grab your spouse's hand right now if you want to. You can kind of rub on it just a little bit if that's kind of what, you know, speaks to, to them. Um, and, and, you know, in, in sickness and until death do you part, we're all in on this. That's a, that's a covenant renewal. And, and when two people express a covenant renewal moment, that's an occasion for celebration, that's a moment of joy. That is something to get excited about. I don't know about you, but I've been to several weddings now in my lifetime, and I've never been to one that's sad. Just, just never been to a sad wedding. And this is the picture of what's happening here as the people are coming together to renew and recommit to their covenant relationship with God. And the festivals are a part of that as well. And so Nehemiah and the people say, you need to rejoice. And this shows us, again, how teachable they are as they come to the word of God. All of this, listen, all of this, this, this word about the joy of the Lord being our strength, it reminds us of the words of Jesus in John chapter 15, verse 11. When Jesus says this, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. And so just, just to encourage you this morning, let's be a people that say, bring the book. Let's be a people who love God's word, not because we idolize it, but because we know that God's voice is speaking to us in a loving way that we might have a love relationship with him as we open it day by day, meditate on it day and night. So let's be a people of the book. But then number two, listen, you may be struggling. You may be filled with doubt in your journey with God right now. And listen, what Nehemiah, and we're really going to see this as we get into chapter 9, all right, is God is, is shouting to us, listen, I hope you hear this today, I have not moved. God is not moving. God does not forsake his people. We may turn away. We may say, God, I got some some other priorities in my life right now, and I'm going to do that, and I'm going to focus on all of these things, and God is just waiting. He's waiting to renew the covenant with us again. And this is such good news for us. So number one, listen, as we see what's happening here in Nehemiah, number one, we want to hunger for God and his joy-producing word. But then number two, we want to humble ourselves before God, and we want to do this in three ways that we see here in Nehemiah chapter 8 and 9. We want to humble ourselves before God by obedience, confession, 
and commitment. First, we see obedience. We see this in verses 13 through 18. We're going to read a lot, so just get ready. On the second day, the heads of the father's houses of all the people with the priests and the Levites came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words. They're hungry. They're hungry. They're coming back. Give us more. The words of the law. And they found it written in the law that the Lord had commanded by Moses that the people of Israel should dwell in booths during the feast of the seventh month and that they should proclaim it and publish it in all their towns and in Jerusalem. Go out to the hills and bring branches of olive, wild olive, myrtle, palm, and other leafy trees to make booths as it is written. So the people went out and brought them and made booths for themselves, each on his roof and in their courts and in the courts of the house of God. And in the square at the water gate and in the square at the gate of Ephraim. And all the assembly of those who had returned from the captivity made booths and lived in the booths. For from the days of Jeshua, the son of Nun, to that day, the people of Israel had not done so. And, day, and there was great, a very great rejoicing. And day by day, from the first day to the last day, he read from the book of the law of God. They kept the feast seven days, and on the eighth day, there was a solemn assembly according to the rule. And so what, what is going on here? It says that the second day, they come back, Ezra give us more, and as they learn more from the law, they find out, oh, wait, the Feast of Booths is coming, and we are to observe and remember the time when God led our ancestors out of oppression in Egypt and through the wilderness and our fathers and mothers camped out in these booths or the translation is tents that they lived in as they journeyed through the wilderness. And so God gives them this feast of booths so that they would remember how faithful God is, what he's done in their lives. And this is why they draw near to God through this act of remembrance. But, but I love, I don't want to miss this in verse 13. It says that they came together to Ezra the scribe in order to study the words of the law. It's important for us to read the Bible. Most mornings I'm reading. I'm reading multiple chapters, but also I don't, I don't want to just read it. I want to understand what it says. And so even though I've read the Bible for a long time and I even went to school, you know, for this stuff, all right, I need to look into what the text is actually saying and I need to study what it says. I need to look for the key words. I need to see connections in the relationships of the, the grammatical relationships and the logical relationships. I need to look for repeated words. I need to ask questions of the text. We want to make observation after observation after observation that's going to lead us to the interpretation. And we want to see it in context and we want to see the flow of thought and, and, and all of the things that lead us to truly understand what the Bible is saying. You say, well, Pastor Tanner, this is your job. You get paid for this. You know, you're reading, you're studying every week, and you come and you explain it to us, and it must be easy for you. It's easier than it used to be. But we all need to put in the work. And here's, here's just a tip. You can go to your app on your phone or go to the website and download the ESV 
study the ESV Bible app, and on it you will find a free resource, which is the Study Bible, and it is a very excellent study Bible that you can use as you study God's Word. So as they study the word, they, they see that they need to keep the Feast of Booths. So they, it says in verse 15, they spread the news far and wide. Verse 16 says the people set them up everywhere on roofs and courts and city squares. Verse 17 says that they rejoiced greatly because they had not kept a feast like this since the days of Joshua. Okay, that's Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua. Okay, when, when they started celebrating the Feast of Booths, maybe it was because they hadn't actually built temporary shelters like tents or maybe because they never kept it with such passion or under such circumstances, we can't be sure. But we know that it was a cause for rejoicing. And even verse 18 says that day by day during the Feast of Booths, they continue to gather for the reading and the hearing of the word of God. So what's, what's the point for our consideration here? The point is this, the people did not just hear the word. They weren't just hungry for the word, but they were hungry to know it, understand it, and then obey it, to do what it said. And I can't tell you, I just to echo the words of Jesus, listen, and we've all experienced this, and it's just, it's just the laws of the universe, the laws of the kingdom of God. Please hear me today. Listen, if you live your life according to God's truth, if you live your life according to God's word, life is there for you. Joy is there for you. Peace is there for you. Isaiah 48 verse 18 says it like this. Oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments, God speaking. Then your peace would have been like a river and your righteousness like the waves. Just keep coming, right living, right blessing people like the waves of the sea. Obedience involves doing what God says, and it brings us life. So when we read the Bible, when we study, we need to see the things that God wants us to do. Maybe we need to start doing or, or start again to build again in the things that he wants us to do, but then we also see these areas of our lives where he's saying, uh-uh, you need to stop doing these things. And this is what we get to when we get to chapter 9. Not only are they obedient in their humility before God, but they are also confessing the ways that they are not honoring to God. So let's read verses one through five of Nehemiah chapter nine. It says this, now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord, their God, for a quarter of the day, three hours, and for another quarter of it, three hours, they made confession and worshiped the Lord, their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadamiel, Shabaniah, Buni, Sherebiah, Bani, and Chenai. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadamiel, Bani, Hashabinani, Sherebiah, Hodaiah, Shabaniah, and Petaiah. I mean, I know you guys are laughing at me on the inside. It's great. Uh, they said, Stand up. And bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. 
Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. And so let me just real quick tell you what's going on in chapter 9. It tells us here, and it's like, oh, is that an important detail, 24th day? It's super important because the 24th day of the month comes 23 days later after they had heard the law for the first time. And what happened when they heard the law? They saw all the ways, remember, that they were misaligned with God's heart and his word, and they were, began to weep and to mourn over their sin. But Ezra and the Levites say, you don't need to be mourning right now because it's a time of celebration and festival over what God has done for his people. And so they actually push pause on their mourning, and it's not until they finish the feast and the feast of booths after the eighth day that they come back on the 24th day, and they say, we have some things that we need to deal with with our God. Because we discovered some ways that we have offended him. And when you discover that you offend somebody, especially God, you need to work that out and make things right. You need to say, God, I see, this is, by the way, this is just a little primer on repentance, okay? Repentance is turning from our sin and back to God. Okay, repentance is not, please hear this. Repentance is not just saying, my bad. Repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry. Okay, repentance is seeing life, seeing what God wants, seeing our hearts like God sees them. Repentance is seeing what God sees and then, yes, feeling how God feels about it. So then all of a sudden we have a godly sorrow that comes when we start loving what God loves and hating what God hates. And we express this godly sorrow, and then we grow to the point where we, we so despise our sin that we turn from it and turn to God in the path of life. And so this is what is beginning to happen for the people of Israel. They are confessing their sins, but not just their sins. As we talked about in Nehemiah chapter 1, the iniquities of their fathers. They're not such Western individualists, but they are collectively taking responsibility, not just for their own actions, but the actions of their ancestors that have led them to this point of exile and slavery. And it says that they then, as they begin to confess, they, they start where we should probably most always start in prayer. They bless God for who he is. They say, God, you are, you are God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, God. Your name is exalted above all blessing and praise. Whatever you find praiseworthy this weekend, today, this week, okay, God is higher. That's what they're saying. But then as they go on, they get into this rhythm. And again, for the sake of time, I'd love to unpack all of this, but, but what we're gonna need to do is notice the rhythm of proclaiming God's greatness on the one hand in contrast with the faithlessness and rebellion of God's people. And so what I want to do is, is just to help us uh, process this. And, 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 and actually what I want to encourage us is this. This week you now have an opportunity to go and study what we don't have time to really unpack this morning, okay? So, so I'm just going to point out as we read the ways that they're proclaiming God's greatness in the history of Israel's story from creation in Genesis 1 all the way to the 24th day of the seventh month. But I'm also going to point out how they're, they've rebelled against God throughout. So let's start in verse 6. 
God. The everlasting from everlasting God, whose name is glorious. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their hosts, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. And you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham, which means father of many nations. Verse 8, you have found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promise for you are righteous. So here we see that the faithfulness of God, the love of God in creation and in covenant and making these promises to his people. And then they go on and proclaim his greatness in verse 9 in the Exodus. And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders, thank you, God, against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. God, we're praying for signs and wonders in Ukraine, Lord, that you can do things that are just supernatural, that don't even make sense to our human understanding to protect people and to preserve life. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers, and you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. What else did you do, God? Verse 11, and you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. God really did that. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud, you led them in the day. And by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses, your servant. That's not all God did. Verse 15, you gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But here it is. That's all proclaiming God's greatness, his faithfulness, how amazing he is. But the people rebel, verse 16. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But God, you're great, you're faithful, but God, you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when, here's the unfaithfulness of, of us again. Verse 18, even when they made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You in your great mercies, God's faithfulness again, you in your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. Their, their pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way by which they should go. Look at this, verse 20, you gave your good spirit to instruct them. 
and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And then verse 22, and you gave them kingdoms. Here's, the, here's, the, here's moving into the land. Here's God fulfilling his promise. Verse 22, and you gave them kingdoms. The peoples allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Basham. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven. What he promised to Abraham, we already read about. Here it comes to pass. And you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness rebellion again. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back. What a picture. And killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you hurt, you, and you hurt them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. Now we're in the book of Judges. But after they had rest, this is the book of Judges, they did evil again before you. And you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven and many times delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules. Which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them. He was patient. And he warned them by his spirit through the prophets. Yet they would not give ear. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. And now we come to their current moment in verse 32. Now, therefore, O God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love, Let not all the hardships seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all the people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for we have dealt faithfully, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have kept have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. 
Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves and its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they plead, please, and we are in great distress. Now we've come to the end of their prayer of confession and their request for salvation. They've recounted God's faithfulness again and from creation all the way to the present day. God, you've been faithful. God, you've been great. God, you've been awesome. God, you've provided. You've done things that we would never believe. There's still people don't believe, even though they're told, even in 2022, you did all of that, God. And yet time and time and time again, we were faithless. And you know that this is not only the story of Israel. This is my story and your story. This is our story. God has been so faithful to us. And yet we do our own thing. We go our own way. We're not hungry for his word. So we just do what we do without regard for him. And we, like them, we need to confess. We need to say, God, we see it like you see it. We're sorry, Lord. And change our hearts, Lord. Radically change our hearts, Lord. We're coming back to you. The fractured relationships and even marriages and best friendships and whatever, Lord. That, that, that we're, we're not okay with that, God, because you are a God of love and forgiveness and harmony and peace. And we want our lives to reflect this. We want to honor you in all of our ways. So God, help us. Help us. And God, we're so serious about it. We're so serious about it that it says in verse 38, because of all of this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. What they're saying is this, God, we see it like you see it, and we mean business. We're coming back to you. We're renewing the covenant that you've made with us, Lord. We're saying you have been faithful. God, we desire to be faithful and to walk with you in everything. This is the invitation to us. When we look into the gospels and we see the true and greater Nehemiah, Jesus Christ, we would hear him say, in Luke chapter 11, verse 28, after he has cast out a demon and he's teaching the people and people are amazed and they can't believe what they're hearing and what they're seeing, this woman speaks up and she says, blessed is the womb that bore you, Jesus. And she was right. Blessed, blessed is Mary, the earthly mother of of Jesus who brought him into the world, most certainly blessed, highly favored. We read about her in Luke chapter 1. But do you remember how Jesus responds? He says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. If you want your life to be blessed, if you want to experience the path of life, if you want to know peace and joy in every good thing, keep hungering for the word. Keep humbling yourself before the word of God and then live it. Let's pray together. 
Father, as we prayed in pre-service prayer this morning, God, we're asking you to do what only you can do. God, we pray that you would put such a deep hunger in our hearts for you, Lord, this love relationship with you, God. We don't, we're not bringing the book to check a box. This isn't about just doing something, religious exercise, because it's what we're supposed to do as Christians, just get a word count in that we can satisfy our conscience and say, hey, we read some words on a page. No, that's not the point. God, what we're saying is we want to so know you, so love you, so live for you, that we are putting our lives before you and saying, God, you do whatever it is that you want to do. Like Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 2, that the Father is the gardener, he is the true vine, and he prunes every branch that belongs to him so that we'll bear more fruit. So God, we're saying today, Lord, prune us, God. Change us. Get, get the things out of our lives that don't look like Jesus so that we can live for you with everything we've got so that we can be a shining example of the love of Christ so that our neighbors and our coworkers and the people around us in our community group and our teams and all of the people that we interact with week by week, Lord, that they can see the beauty of Jesus. And because when we see the beauty of Jesus, we can't help but be attracted. You're so beautiful, God. You're so awesome. And so, God, we're here today. We're lifting our hands. We're bowing our hearts, and we're saying, God, keep working in us. Lord, we know we haven't arrived as a people, as a person, but we're saying, Lord, would you do what only you can do, which is make us more like you. So, God, help us to build, Lord. Help us to build our lives on who you are. We ask in Jesus' name.